I'm Dustin Messer, Senior Fellow at the Center for Cultural Leadership and your host for today's episode. Today I'll be talking with Joe McDermott. Dr. McDermott holds the Anglican Chair of Divinity and Peace and Divinity School and ministers at Christ the King Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Before going to Beeson, he was the Jordan Trexler Professor of Religion at Roanoke College, the author of numerous books on theology, history, world religion, and ethics. Dr. McDermott has a new book out in just a few weeks called Everyday Glory, The Revelation of God in All of Reality, and he is here to chat with me about it. Dr. McDermott, thanks for joining us today. Well, you're certainly welcome, Dustin. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm going to start off the conversation with reading some of your words back to you and then get you to react to them. You say this in the introduction. Jonathan Edwards believed that every last bit of the cosmos is a sign that speaks and shows. The message is as near infinite as the universe itself, because the universe was made by the infinite God. But, you write, the message has a code that must be cracked, word by word, sentence by sentence, to tell the story inscribed within. So my first question is just this. What's the message of the universe, and how do we go about cracking it? Well, uh, those are big questions, Dustin, but they're good questions. (laughs) The first, the message of the universe, uh, Jonathan Edwards taught, and I agree with it, that the message of the universe is the story of redemption of a fallen creation by the Trinitarian God through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. That's the message of the universe. Now, uh, your second question was how it can be cracked. Yeah, how we go about cracking it, specifically looking at the physical, natural world uh, around us. The code uh, can be cracked, and the code is cracked in and by Scripture. Mm. So simply by looking at the creation, which is absolutely studded with, embedded with the secret message of the cosmos, that that message cannot be seen apart from Scripture. Uh, a small part of it can, that is the identity of God, according to Edwards. And, you know, you know my book is largely an exposition of what Edwards taught, mm. but I fill it out some. So the identity of God, to some degree, can be seen by reason, if it is open, which it is not most of the time. Mm. Uh, but, but then the fullness of who that God is, and whether God wants to redeem us, and how to redeem us, that cannot be seen anywhere else but in the Christian tradition, mm. as it for thousands of years has explicated the meaning of the Bible. Yeah, and, and so you said something that keeps us from seeing the true message of the cosmos is our eyes being darkened. But you also write that once our eyes are made open by the Holy Spirit, uh, once we're Christians, that particularly in modernity, there are factors that keep even well-meaning, spirit-filled Christians from recognizing the handiwork of God in creation. You know, you talk about atheism and and sort of the the disenchanted world that we live in. So I wonder if you'd just say something about two Christians who see the world uh, not so much as creation, Uh, but is nature, and how can we have our eyes and imagination stirred and reopened to see the handiwork of God in the world? Well, first of all, Dustin, you mentioned that spirit-filled Christians who believe and read the Bible 
nonetheless, many of them think are 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 are, are blinded to the reality of these messages all, all over the creation and the meaning of the messages. Uh, so let me just pause for a minute to talk about that. Uh, and this is particularly true of Protestant Christians who have been told by Protestant theology for the most part, for the last hundred years roughly, that the only way we can know of God and, and uh, the only way we see God's revelation and the only place God has clearly revealed himself is through redemption and the story of which is in the Bible. And we've been taught to distrust any idea that God can be seen in the creation in any particular way whatsoever uh, by, I would say, a false representation of Scripture's teaching uh, in some dominant Protestant theologies the last hundred years. Two leading thinkers, one in the 18th century, one in the 19th century, one Protestant, one Catholic, uh, were really on to this idea that the glory of God is revealed not only through this, the history of redemption and, and the story of redemption as told in the Bible, but also in this created world. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, 18th century, John Henry Newman, 19th century. And I and I talk about Newman because, you know, um, Newman was Protestant before he was Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was an evangelical and then he became an Anglican um, before he became a Roman Catholic. Uh, and, and it was, you know, much of what I get from Newman is in his Anglican period. But in this book, I, I start with Edwards and Newman and what they saw in the creation, the glory of God in the creation and the message of redemption that is embedded in every part of the creation that is there for eyes to see and ears to hear. But I particularly go into different dimensions of reality in this book. So I've got a uh, chapter on nature called Sermons and Stones, um, chapter on science, the discoveries of modern science just in this last century that have opened up all sorts of things about the triune God that, mm. that uh, people never saw before. Yeah. Then a chapter on law, the moral argument, in other words, natural law, then a chapter on history, how God reveals himself even in the histories of peoples, a chapter on animals, where I focus on birds and dogs primarily, a chapter on sex, what some theologians call the language of the body, and a chapter on sports, its agonies and ecstasies, and what we might learn about God through sports of all things. And then finally, the world religion. You know, I've, I've written a lot on Christian theology and world religions. And there are remarkable uh, things going on in the world religions, in spite of the fact that finally the non Jewish and non Christian religions are false. Nevertheless, uh, they contain many truths. And I ask why that is. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful exposition of looking around us and seeing how every facet of life speaks to uh, speaks to the word of God. In other words, recognizing types, symbols of, you brought up Newman, uh, natural types and then types of grace, types of redemption. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if I could ask, ask you a question this way, because I bet a lot of our listeners are familiar with debates surrounding typological readings of the Old Testament. You know, are, when you read the Old Testament, are you yourself allowed to employ the hermeneutic of 
the apostles and sort of recognize types yourself? Or do you just, are you bound only to recognize those types that the apostles recognize themselves? In other words, do we have the ability to recognize types in the Old Testament? And there's sort of a counter question or a similar question for looking for types in all of reality, you know, bringing up sports and other things. Are we allowed to have the same imagination as uh, the New Testament writers and the Old Testament, for that matter, when they recognize types in nature? Uh, can we employ that hermeneutic, or do we just sort of look for those types named in Scripture? Well, I, I think we can, Dustin. Now, of course, there are limits, clear, clear biblical limits, but I think we can look for types, discern types, even in places where Scripture is not explicit. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Uh, we look at the Exodus, the, you know, the story of the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, and of course, that story is referred to all throughout the Old Testament. And we say, well, clearly it was typological. Hmm. It, it referred to salvation from sin, death, and the devil. Just as God used blood in the Exodus, uh, so too God uses Jesus' blood to save us. Uh, just, just as God used water in the Exodus, so too God uses water in baptism to save us. Hmm. Uh, now, of course, you know, there are differences in the Christian churches about uh, how exactly that works in baptism. But nevertheless, but in the book of Exodus, it's never explained how this is a type of the Messiah. Hmm. We all, you know, the New Testament points to Isaiah 53 as a type, you know, suffering servant, as, as a type of um, Christ hmm. and his sufferings on the cross. And yet Isaiah 53 never tells us that this is the Messiah. It never says explicitly how this type works. Uh, the New Testament just picks up those types and refers to them, not explicitly, but implicitly, and sometimes explicitly. Jesus often, he kept hidden from the crowds the meaning of his parables. Hmm. And he rebuked his disciples for not getting the types in the Old Testament. And yet a lot of them he never explained, at least explicitly in the New Testament. Now, he probably did yeah. explain them uh, in the hours and hours and hours he spent walking with his disciples over the dusty roads in Galilee. Hmm. But in the New Testament, there are many types of scripture that um, Jesus never explained, and yet he rebukes his disciples for not understanding that. Hmm. Uh, I take it from there, and it's not just I, but you know many others who have written on types, that um, if Jesus expected his disciples, and, and, he expected, and he expected the scribes and the Pharisees to learn the types about the Messiah, types that, that were not explicitly explained in the Old Testament, uh, so too it is not illicit for believers to read the Old Testament and come up with more types than are explicitly stated in the text of the Old Testament itself. Now, uh, the limit is what Scripture makes clear is beyond its story. So, for instance, if somebody, and, and, and there are many Christians who do this today, who comb the Old Testament and the New Testament for types teaching supposedly same-sex marriage, mm. that same-sex marriage can be uh, okay before God. 
I'd say because scripture is very clear that same-sex marriage is is uh, is not marriage, and the true marriage is between man and woman, then therefore that typological reading of the Bible would be proscribed, mm-hmm. proscribed, not prescribed, proscribed by scripture. Um, so too if Christians and 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 many do today go through the Old Testament, the New Testament for types, teaching that that everyone will be saved eventually. The teaching of universalism. I think scripture is very clear. As Michael McClyman has just pointed out in his magisterial book, The Devil's Redemption, that universalism is false. Hmm. That there will be a final judgment and there will be an eternal hell for some. Sadly, but true. Uh, there too, uh, those who find types supposedly teaching that, um, I would say that that uh, reading, that typological reading is proscribed not prescribed by, by, by the explicit testimony of Scripture. Well, you brought up uh, sex, and so you one of your chapters is, is on sex. I wonder if I could ask you kind of a, a long <laughs> leading question. But earlier I said uh, we live in a disenchanted world. And, of course, this isn't entirely true, right? We live in the world in which we find ourselves, and, and it's God's world. And God's world has meaning in it whether we do yep. or do not recognize it. And so with that in mind, I right. wonder I wonder if you'd just say something. You know, in the 60s and 70s, we were telling ourselves as a cultural as a culture kind of a contradictory story about sex that it's transactional, it's penultimate, it's meaningless. And now, you know, whatever one thinks of the Me Too movement, it's at least shown us sort of the futility and absurdity of that story. So I wonder if you'd just say something as, you know, a, a priest in a particular parish with, with I assume, a lot of uh, college-age folks. How do you help people navigate, particularly in this really turbulent cultural moment, their own sexuality, the sexuality of others? And what's at stake if we get the question of meaning and sex wrong? If we get the meaning of sex wrong, we get an awful lot of other things wrong. And, and all we have to do is look around us uh, today. Um, I think the fundamental lie today is that uh, marriage is entirely socially and culturally constructed, and one kind of marriage is just as good as another kind of marriage, and uh, children can be raised just as well by same-sex couples as by opposite-sex couples. I, I, I would say that, um, first of all, the social scientific data have already given the lie for many, many years to that latter notion that kids do just as well. I mean, the fact is there's, there, there's, there's lots and lots. There are many, many soci, you know, sociological, psychological studies that have shown that the best environment for raising kids, all other things being equal, uh, that they're raised by a mommy and a daddy, because mommies have a certain way of raising kids and daddies have a very different way of raising kids. And kids need both Mm. to be healthy. Um, Now, of course, many of us have been raised by single parents and have done just fine. But that uh, still, it is true that the optimal uh, way of raising a child is, is with a man and a woman and a man and a woman who are totally committed to each other for their lives. Hmm. That, 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 um, um, 
that makes a huge difference. And and scripture is um, uh, absolutely clear on this. The definition of marriage in scripture is Genesis 2, 24. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. And it's quoted by both Jesus and Paul when there are questions about marriage and divorce. They, they always go back to the beginning to that um, primary and, and really sole biblical definition of marriage, Genesis 2, 24. Uh, a man leaves um, his mother and father and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So there's a leaving from the uh, parents. There's a there's a fundamental joining. And then in those same first two chapters of Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply. It's a command. So, so marriage, according to the Bible, most of the time is primarily about procreation, primarily about, uh, about having children. It's secondarily about companionship. You see that in Song of Solomon and you see it in other places. But it's now in terms of types, uh, Paul makes the um, claim in Ephesians 5. And, you know, the church has writ, written voluminously on this for thousands of years that the union of a man and woman in marriage is a type of the antitype, which is the love union between Christ and his church. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not at all intuitive, intuitively obvious. <laughs> That's where, you re- where the church has been thinking and pondering for, for thousands of years. And in my chapter on sex, I, I try to unpack some of the church's thinking on this. Yeah. But... You know, I asked about my parish and and my counseling of uh, college students and seminary students and young couples. I have found time and again from from counseling couples for 40 years Mm. that um, God's ways are the best. Mm. Uh, The loving union of a man and a woman dedicated to the triune God having children. That is always the best way for kids. And it's the best way for the parents themselves. Yeah. Well, I uh, turning, that's very helpful. Uh, turning to the chapter on world religions and, and touching on natural law a bit as well. Um, probably most libraries and bookstores won't uh, categorize the book as apologetics, but it struck me um, that it has just a lot of import for sharing our faith with non-believers. And so I'll tell you... Uh, a story that happened to me just in the past few days. I was talking to a friend who's a non-believer, and he brought up that many religions teach basically the same thing. And I think had I not have read your book uh, just before talking to to the guy, I would have automatically uh, appealed to the differences of religion. But in your book, you show that that instinct to say, well, the moral tradition or the moral teaching in, in many different religions negates Christianity, in fact, can be a powerful, positive defense of Christianity. So I wonder if you could just give us some advice when we hear that argument from non-believers. Sure. Uh, I, I told my college students for 26 years when I was teaching college in Virginia, uh, I, I say most, most, most people in the world, including Christians, uh, believe two things. Um, number one, that all the world religions teach essentially the same thing about God. And number two, that all the world's cultures teach radically different things about morals. Hmm. And in these two beliefs that most people in the world believe, they are wrong on both counts. Hmm. Number one, uh, 
Uh, now you can call them the vertical and the horizontal. And the vertical is about God. So number one, it is radically untrue that all the world religions teach essentially the same thing about God. Uh, how can I say that? Well, the Buddha, for all practical purposes, was an atheist. Philosophical uh, Taoism, philosophical Hinduism, and philosophical Buddhism are all basically atheistic. Uh, whereas the religions of the Middle East, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are theistic. They believe in a personal God. You can't get any more different than that. Some religions teaching there is no God, and other religions teaching there is a God. Now, some of your listeners are going to say, well, how can you say that religions that teach there is no God are religions? That's not a religion. That's a philosophy. No, no. Um, you cannot study the life of the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha and say this was not a religious man. This is a profound religion. Uh, uh, his early kind of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism. Hmm. Uh, the, the problem is not with what I said about religion. The problem is a definition of religion. And I think the best definition of religion, that's the most capacious, that's the most um, uh, useful in talking about the major world religions, is the following. That a religion is a systematic set of answers to the basic questions of life. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is this world? Where did it come from? Where is it going? And how should I live, live my daily life? So, you know, atheistic communism, uh, any kind of atheism is a religion if it systematically tries to answer those questions. Hmm. So, too, for philosophical Buddhism, philosophical Hinduism, uh, and the Buddha himself. Hmm. So, so on that first question, the vertical, uh, the world religions teach radically different things. And uh, not only um, whether there's a God, but what that God is like and how to get to that God. The world religions, even in the Middle Eastern religions, and all major religions are from the East. They're either from the Far East or the Middle East. Uh, Christianity is not a Western religion. It came from the Middle East. Uh, so, and it's a daughter of Judaism, Middle Eastern religion. And Islam also came from the Middle East. And uh, um, they, they teach, uh, especially Islam on the one hand and Christianity and Judaism on the other, teach, teach very different things about what God is like and how to get to that God. Hmm. Now, the second major uh, question that, that most people in the world get wrong is whether the world's cultures teach, rad, uh, teach radically different things about morals, morality. And um, I'll give an illustration of how they get how they get it wrong. Uh, I'll quote C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once said that if you're trying to investigate the the different moral teachings of the world's moral traditions, which ultimately are all religious in origin, and you went to the British Museum, that's a big library. And you spent three days, and, and, and you got all out all the um, basic texts of the great moral teachers of the world, who all were religious, mm -hmm. including Confucius, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, 
after three days, you'd get really bored <laughs> because you would find that that whereas they interpret and apply each principle differently, they all are are teaching the same basic principles. Hmm. There is no moral teacher in the history of the world who ever said it's a good thing to be selfish. There's no moral teacher in the history of the world who ever said it's good to lie, cheat, or steal, or commit adultery. Hmm. They all condemn these things. They all talk about a living for uh, one's community and not just for yourself. Those, those are the basic principles of all the moral teachers of the world. Hmm. So, uh, contrary to what most of the world believes, the uh, Christianity agrees with most of the world with with all the great world religions on basic moral principles, and the world religions teach radically different things about whether there's a God, what that God is like, and how to get to that God. Well, you have been very generous with your time, Dr. McDermott. I have one last question. I thought the most helpful sort of illustration given in the book was in your chapter chapter on history. And you talk about how we can either view ourselves as going down the Chesapeake Bay Bridge or being on Route 66. And I wonder if uh, in this closing uh, time, you could just kind of recount that illustration and then maybe give us some advice on how we could move from driving in a bridge, seeing life as a bridge to seeing life as uh, Route 66. Sure. Well, you know, if you... Um, Old Route 66 is still pretty much still there, and it used to be the principal um, uh, road in America to get from the east to the west. And for uh, way back in the old days, and it's still true today, you can get off Route 66 whenever you want and stop um, and look up at the sky. And look back into time, because we know that the light, like if you're at night and you look up in the sky at night, and you see all these stars. We know the light from those stars actually came from thousands of years ago. It's 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 not today's light. It's it's the light of the past that is coming into our present. But if you go on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, you know, that's about uh, I forget what what 30. Um, it's. 23 miles long. Hmm. And once, you know, once you're on it, you can't stop without getting hit from behind and, and thus, hmm. and thus uh, withdrawing completely from this life. Yeah. There are no exits or off ramps until the end. You know, this is how many Christians think of history, that, it's get, that, that, that it has no final meaning and no clarity that we can see in, uh, uh, until its end. Hmm. And in the meantime, any types that we might see are simply man-made and therefore um, they're either unreliable or actually we're committing adultery by indulging them. But actually Route 66 is a better illustration hmm. of the openness of history um, to meaning. That is all along linear history, and we Westerns think of history as, as linear, um, we can stop at any point and look up, as it were, just as on Route 66 at night. And, and we can see the antitypes coming to us from the future, 
and also from the past, mm. giving meaning to our present in this so-called linear history. Very helpful. Uh, Dr. McDermott, your new book, Everyday Glory, The Revelation of God and All of Reality by Baker Books. Remind us, when will that be published? In the next few weeks, right? Yeah, sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, they say uh, now that they are telling me uh, early November. Early November. I would encourage readers uh, to get the book, read the book, and use the book. Dr. McDermott, thank you for your time. Thank you, Dustin. Appreciate it. You're happy to be on.